one of the questions, the one I didn't bring up, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? So we're asking the question that the world tends to ask it this way, why do bad things happen to good people, right? It's a common question that we hear. We hear it on, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our um, break rooms at work, in our classrooms, and on social media, often on news sites and, and so forth. That is the common question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Another way to phrase it, the way that's been posed uh, in the face of the Judeo-Christian God, our God, is how could a loving God allow so much suffering? If he is loving, how can he allow this? Now, we've all experienced pain, loss, and suffering, right? Especially the last couple years in particular, but from one degree or another, we've all uh, dealt with, faced some sort of suffering in our lives. Uh, our earliest memories of pain or loss may just be falling off the swing or our bike, right? Maybe our goldfish or dog died as a kid. Maybe we lost a loved one. Uh, maybe we endured and faced uh, abuse or suffering at a really young age. Things of that sort. Lo loss of parents or, or grandparents or a sibling. Abandonment and so on. At some point... Maybe that didn't happen early on for, it, for us, but at some point we all lose, in particular, people. Loved ones grow old or sick and we have to say goodbye. Other times these happen unexpectedly and we never are able to say goodbye, which hurts in a different but very real way. For some of us, it was far too soon and suffering, it's, it's just this ever-present reality in our world. It's something that we can't escape. Now, one of the promises of sociological progressivism is that over time we can minimize and maybe even reach a time where we can eradicate suffering, where just suffering's done. Humans don't have to suffer anymore. That is kind of this hope, this heaven that society is pressing on towards apart from a God. Maybe sometimes with a God, but apart from a God often. If we advance, if we study, if we develop enough, suffering will be minimized. But it is ever-present. Cancer and famine, assault and trafficking, bullying and suicide, terrorism and genocide, pandemics, the pandemics, segregation, natural disasters, slavery, these things are ever-present throughout our world and sometimes even in our own land that we live in. We think of a lot of these things, and if you, if you walk through that list, none of them have really entirely gone away. We haven't eradicated any of these great fears and sources of suffering throughout human history. There's a time where we think we get rid of this, we think we get rid of that, but then it just manifests in a different way. We think we got rid of slavery, we just exported it overseas, right? We thought the Civil War ended it. We just decided as long as they're not American, we're okay with slaves as long as they don't live in our borders. Um, we think, you know, segregation or things of that sort, class discrepancies are not a reality. No, they, ever, they really are, right? We see this in the college admissions uh, scandal that happened a couple years ago, right, where wealthy people are paying to get their kids into the most prestigious universities in our land, and we have very unlikely opportunity ourselves to enter said 
places. People are on different levels, and sometimes no matter how hard we try, it can be suffering. This is a Supreme Court case that's actually coming likely this summer, that some have faced rejection despite their them and their families' plights. And so still we ask, how? How could a truly loving God allow so much suffering? And yes, for the record, there is a difference between not getting into Harvard and enduring genocide. I, I understand that. But I also do want to acknowledge that, man, there is real pain there. There is pain in those uh, scenarios for people. Let's not deter or diminish someone else's pain, even though it may be a different degree. Now, there's an abundance of suffering and pain in this world, some of which we inflict on ourselves, right? But others, we have a harder time explaining why this happens. There's not really a great answer outright. The question isn't always so black and white. It's often gray. A couple years ago, uh, we were in Florida vacationing, and I received a, a call um, late at night in our hotel room, and it was my older sister, my older sister, my only sister, um, and she could barely make out the words, but she was sharing that she found out she had been diagnosed with cancer. And then uh, my mom quickly took over the phone call because my sister was really moved to, to tears. And, um, and yeah, my mom began explaining the situation. She had a very rare uh, bone cancer uh, in her shoulder and that it was very likely that it had spread to the point that she would be gone within about a year. And so uh, it was a very, you know, I, I know I couldn't breathe. I, I was losing it. Um, all of a sudden, things flood in your minds of, man, you think you're going to grow up and your sister's going to be in your life and her family and your family and our kids, they're going to be friends and cousins and, and all these different things. And then you're just like, oh, no. Life might be totally different than how I thought it would be. It began to rush, and I went into a tunnel, uh, some tunnel vision. Now, thankfully, my sister underwent a much chemotherapy and surgery, and she has fully recovered. But for those few weeks and months, even still, we, we ask, you know, why does she have to face this? Why does her family have to face this? Why does her little girl have to potentially go forward without her mom in her life? Um, you know, why does our extended family have to? I know you're good, God, but why? Now, this question is not new. In fact, humanity has been asking this question for generations. Around the 4th or 3rd century BCE, Greek philosopher Epicurus sought to answer this question, concluding that in light of human suffering and the problem of evil, God cannot be both all-powerful and all-good. And so David Hume elaborated on this in the Enlightenment. And you may have heard this quote. David Hume wrote, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. He's evil. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why should we call him God? He's dealing with the realities of suffering that there is no good answer apart from him. Now, world-renowned scientist uh, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, well, actually, in a, in a predecessor, uh, A River of Edom, he wrote, 
in light of the chaos and suffering of life, that this universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but a pitless indifference. Pitiless indifference, sorry. So, we're going to ask, does it make sense to believe in a God that is all-powerful, all-good, and yet allows evil and suffering to happen? Does Christianity work only for those who, like us in the West, who, and, and at this particular moment in time and history, are, are more privileged than perhaps most people in the world, in Western nations, having never experienced things like slavery or genocide or invasion or things of that sort? Someone taking our land or taking us from our land? Can it work for those who are less fortunate, those who have had to endure and are enduring much more strenuous lives? Lives of oppression and lives of degradation. Lives and cultures that haven't experienced technological and scientific developments that help them out of some things that we've we think we've advanced past in the West. And even in the States, as I alluded to, there are drastic economic, social, class, gender, racial disparities. And while we believe and profess that we are equal in the eyes of God, we'd be hard-pressed to prove that we all have experienced or come from the same equal access to help when hardships hit. Some of us are just dealt different hands. Now, to attempt to answer the, this question, we're going to look at suffering with three different components. Suffering without a God, suffering with the Buddha, and then suffering with Jesus. So let's start with suffering without a God, an atheistic or agnostic worldview, uh, predominantly an atheistic worldview. Um, if you're unfamiliar, an atheist means they believe definitively there is no God, whereas an agnostic believes uh, gnost is uh, knowledge that you, we cannot know. So an agnostic is just owning, I don't think there's any way to know. Whereas an atheist is a little more sure um, that there is no God. Now, like most worldviews, this perspective spans a broad spectrum. I'm, I'm going to be, you know, rather um, simplistic in the view. But I've had numerous conversations with atheists over the years, and I hope you too have, also, <laughs> you also have. Um, and many believe that any sort of empathy or care for others is really just a fault of evolution as a species. Now, when survival of the fittest is all there is and the reason we're here, if that's our foundation alone, that we got here because we were stronger than the other, then I appreciate the honest assessment of some atheists where they say, there's really no reason to have empathy. If anything, it's a survival game. We've got to survive, and sometimes it's at the expense of others. That's one end of the spectrum of life suffering without God. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there's atheist friends of mine who have come to conclude that empathy is just a means, a helpful tool in forming community, that we're better together, and thus we should have empathy and look out for one another, and thus, in so doing, we are able to progress as a species. They see this as a temporarily valuable trait in regards to surviving. So again, reading the Dawkins quote, the universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now this is a rather dark 
blunt view, right? He's pretty honest in saying it that, hey man, if there's no God, there's no point to it. This is just kind of fantasy because in the end, we're all going to experience the final suffering, death, or maybe put out of our suffering. But if there is no purpose, no evil, no good, then why do we care is essentially what he owns. Why are we so deeply grieved in the face of suffering? Now, Rebecca McLaughlin, she wrote in response to Dawkins this quote, if our sympathy for others is just a byproduct of evolutionary kinship, why empathize with the suffering of those outside of our tribe? And if our sense of self is just a delusion, the, meaning, uh, the meaningfulness of life in the face of suffering evaporates along with our moral agency. The irony at the heart of today's secular humanism is that spokesmen like Sam Harris, he's another predominant uh, dominant atheist voice, believe in human beings no more than they believe in God. Ultimately, both are delusions. Removing meaning from the equation of suffering does not solve the riddle, rather it unravels our very self. Essentially, she's pointing out that our suffering, the pain that we feel and experience, should point us to a deeper sense of self, a reality that this is not a delusion. But see, suffering without God depends on a delusion. Suffering minus meaning or a deity doesn't really equal bliss. It should force us to ask, why does my suffering matter then? If there's no meaning to life, then there's no meaning to, the, to my suffering. It's simply a delusion. It's here momentarily, but it's going to be gone. It doesn't matter. I am but a blip in the timeline of existence. Why should it matter? It's rather heartless, right? But if we're honest with it, with the assessment, with the worldview, there really is no lasting significance to suffering from an atheistic worldview other than, again, the plight of your tribe. But even still, that does then set us up to question, why do we care about suffering outside of our community, outside of our tribe, outside of our land, outside of our people group? Now, I'm a kid of the 90s, and in the 90s, um, we had this thing on Friday nights called TGIF on ABC. Um, thank God it's Friday, and we had some great shows growing up. Uh, Boy Meets World, uh, Family Matters, Step by Step, things of that sort, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. These were all the, this was the Friday night lineup that I grew up on. But one thing you noticed over time, as shows went into the 90s, these shows started, instead of talking about a deity, a god, um, not necessarily a Christian god or a Muslim god or anything of that sort that were generally in the set shows of the 60s through the 80s, it started turning towards the universe. They couldn't get away, the plot lines, the storylines could not get away from something outside of us uh, in control, determining our destiny, dealing us, the car dealer, dealing us our hand. But they didn't want to call it God because it's a little too assuming. And yet even still, we still refer to this, this almighty being, the universe. The universe dealt me this. The universe may not want this to happen to, the, uh, to me. Even uh, in my high school years, I liked a show called How I Met Your Mother, and, and the main uh, character was very much uh, in submission to the universe, the almighty universe. He dealt him and was potentially 
helping him find his wife for the nine seasons that went on. Seven seasons too long. Um, but anyways, there is this almighty universe. There is this almighty power. Even still, culture can't escape this reality. We just may not want to call it God, but we still try and find something else. Call it God, or as we turn to Buddha, call it karma. Whatever it may be, there is this almighty source that is removed from us in power, whether it be a puppet master or a beneficiary or a benefactor, there is something we acknowledge that is in control. Now, perhaps depersonalizing the figure in charge from God to an impersonal force like the universe allows people to lower their expectations of the universe. It's kind of this coping mechanism. And then lower the chances of being disappointed when the universe fails them and doesn't come through. It almost is a numb, numbing agent. Now, each person's reason for assuming this worldview likely varies, but we do want to see that suffering without a deity depends on a delusion, that our life matters. But if this is it, if this is all there is, why does your suffering matter? There isn't really a great answer, and that's really why I am grateful for reading atheists like Richard Dawkins, who owns that man, there is no point to it. But let's turn to the Buddha, suffering with the Buddha. Buddhism tends to be a middle ground between the meaninglessness of atheism and sometimes overbearing structures of organized religion. So one of its aims is to offer a remedy to the problem of suffering, a means to cope with its reality. Now, Jonathan Haidt, he's an atheist, uh, but Jewish psychologist. He writes, in light of Buddhism, when I began writing this book, the book he's referring to is The Happiness Hypothesis, I thought that Buddha would be a strong contender for the best psychologist of the last 3,000 years award. To me, his diagnosis of the futility of striving felt so right, his promise of tranquility so alluring. But in doing research for the book, I began to think that Buddhism might be based on an overreaction, perhaps even an error. Now, for those unfamiliar with the Buddha's story, here's a brief, brief synopsis of the Buddha. Before he became the Buddha, the man was a prince. However, a prophecy foretold that he would one day betray his kingdom. The man's father, the king, attempted to dissuade him from doing so. The man eventually married a beautiful princess, but still the young man's boredom developed, leading him to convince his father to allow him to leave the palace and explore in a chariot. Now the king told all the sick, elderly, and disabled to stay home that day, the day that his son was going out, in order to guard his son from seeing human suffering and thus become sad. He wanted to blind him from the realities of human suffering. But because there was one elderly man on the street, the son learned that everyone ages. The next day, he learned of disease because he encountered a sick person. Lastly, the prince was faced with a corpse, learning the realities of death. In fulfillment of the prophecy, the son left the kingdom and retreated to the woods. There, his journey of enlightenment began. When he returned to the social world, the Buddha taught that life is suffering. The only way to avoid said suffering is to cut off any ties of attachment that bind one to life. Now, this is a different way of coping with our suffering, with our hurts in the world. 
detachment. Suffering with the Buddha depends on detachment, a separation of our realities. There's an interesting show um, so far on Apple TV. I love that you're laughing already because I've been plugging this for you. Uh, on Apple TV Plus right now called uh, Severance. And it's kind of a, an interesting, I don't know where it's going, but there is a point, there's this, it's a futuristic story that, uh, and it's a commentary on work-life balance, but essentially the, the workers undergo an operation to sever their work self from their outside self. Thus separating any sort of overlap so that your work is not influenced by your outside world and all the problems potentially going on and vice versa. And what happens is they start becoming two totally separate people. They have no idea what their lives are outside of work and the people outside of work have no idea what they do at work. It's kind of this creepy futuristic elseworld thing going on and it, it's hitting a pretty good climax right now. Um, but the point being, there is this detachment and the narrative, the rising arc is going where the people are starting to realize how that bliss is, if anything, unsettling. It is unfulfilling. That it is anything but bliss. And the, the corporation was hoping that it was, would help them be better workers, that they are fully present from eight to five. But in reality, the workers are actually losing uh, work time because they are starting to unravel and question and wonder, who am I outside these walls? Is this right? Is this good for us as humanity? And it lines up, it resonates well with the Buddha's view on suffering, to detach, to sever ourselves from our experiences, from our pain, from the realities that we feel. But if anyone uh, has any experience with pain, I think we all know that numbing our pain does anything but help. It just numbs, right? It wasn't until I was like a teenager that I learned that NyQuil doesn't actually heal my cold. It just numbs the symptoms. That really got me upset. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, my body's the thing that has to beat my cold? No, but it, it was a numbing agent. It didn't actually make me better. It helped me as my body became better. But we often utilize numbing agents, correct? And that's even in this time of Lent that we've been, some of us have per perhaps given up numbing agents in our lives for the five or so weeks to open up room for God to show us where we're looking to something else other than him for satisfaction, hope, fulfillment, and so on. We know that this detachment doesn't work. We know that it can allow us to feel better about the suffering and evil in this life that this distance can, that, that there's a reason why American companies don't, um, you know, why we don't use kidnapped kids in our country, right? We use kidnapped kids in other countries to pick cotton and chocolate and coffee beans. We're removed, we're detached, there's a separation from us and them. Similarly, there's a reason why when we're texting, we're detached, we're removed from the other person where if I'm having a conversation with Sarah, I'm probably not gonna, and she gets me upset, no offense Sarah, you've never done this. Um, maybe one day. Um, if Sarah gets me upset, if I'm in person, I might be less inclined to explode, right? To be as honest. But man, if we're texting, if there's two screens and miles apart, how often have we sent that text message where 
I probably wouldn't have said that if she were right in front of me. Or think of the other way, the, the lack of response. If Sarah's talking to me and then I just leave her on red in person, like right here for hours, like that's weird. Uh, leaving on red means, sorry, that, that's young people talk. Um, not responding. Imagine if Sarah's having a conversation with me and I just don't respond right away for hours. We do that with text messages, right? We could be in the middle of a conversation and then all of a sudden that person just stops texting us back. And you're just like, what happened? We were, we were just talking. What happened? And it's th those two screens, that distance between us, it allows us to separate, to detach. But we know that that doesn't work. It, it devalues our, our relationships. It devalues our communication. It gets in the way. So as communication has now detached even our voices from the equation, it's no wonder that we continue to see the person on the other side of the screen as a little less than human. When I was a youth pastor, I often challenged my students with the question, what would you say to that person if they were right in front of you? If you want to go a little deeper or harder, um, you know, it, one of the questions, as a recovering porn addict myself, you know, the question was often posed in recovery groups, you know, would you be watching that if there wasn't a screen in between you and them, if they were right in front of you? Different. But those allow you to distance yourself. Distance numbs us from the realities of pain, of suffering, of sin, of evil. And putting it that way allows you to face our sufferings, our evil, things that we are faced with daily. The distance and detachment can be seen in the rise of outrage and online bully culture. Because the person we're writing to on Facebook is just an avatar, right? It's just someone's photo. It's not really them. Even though we know it's them, but man, we're not going to make that comment to them, to their face, if they're right in front of us, that we often post on their Facebook feed. There's so many layers between us and them that we have a difficult time recalling that they're made in the image of God. We do this especially with regards to celebrities, right? We saw this even this last Sunday, how many people had opinions on the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing. Oh man, it was a lot. And we all think we know everything about everything going on with both of them and their entire families and social circles. And we have an immediate reaction and response and evaluation, a verdict for what happened. And now I'm not condoning or, or, or but I just want to say, you know, we, we have these reactions, these visceral reactions, and we make positions. Billie Eilish, a uh, famous pop singer, prominent with Gen Z, wrote in her song a few years ago, Everything I Wanted, describing her recent success and rise to fame in the music world and beyond. She wrote, I had a dream, I got everything I wanted, but not what you'd think. And if I'm being honest, it might have been a nightmare to anyone who might care. And a few verses later, she writes, they called me weak, like I'm not just somebody's daughter. Billy's describing how as she increases in fame, she simultaneously decreases in personhood for the broader culture. The more people know her, the more distant, the more she gets elevated up the pedestal of fame, the more she's devalued as a human, 
that people are willing to say things about her or to her in a comment feed or in a tweet thread that man, they wouldn't say to her or to her parents. Distance creates this illusion. And that's what happens with our suffering. That the suffering with the Buddha is becomes a delusion for us. That we have to pretend it's not there. But see, because of this, it devalues our humanity. It devalues our experience as well. Because of it, we're seeing that uh, if we operate in that worldview, we are devaluing our experience. We are then making it void of any meaning, any significance. That that pain you're feeling doesn't really matter. It's just a neurochemical reaction in your body or in your mind that you just kind of need to get over. Let's spend the remainder of the time looking at suffering with Jesus. For this portion, we're looking at John 11. We're jumping a bit through. If you're unfamiliar with the Lazarus story, Lazarus is a friend uh, of Jesus and uh, the brother of Mary and Martha. Now, he's very sick, and he's, they've sent a message telling Jesus of his sickness. This is one of Jesus' friends. And let's look at verse 4. We're going to jump a bit, but starting in verse 4. When Jesus heard about this, he said that this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. After having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, the sisters and Jesus' disciples are likely aware of all that Jesus has done up until this point. He's, he's not unknown. He's definitely been doing some things in John's gospel. We're in chapter 11. So, you know, we're not just meeting Jesus. They're not just meeting Jesus. He's healed people he's never met, and yet he won't come to the help of his friend who is dying. How often have you felt that? How often have we felt that as a people? Like we've asked God for something. We've asked him to step in. We've asked him for healing, for a solution, a way out. And it just seems either like he doesn't answer or like he doesn't care. Stew in that. Just steep in that. That reality that these gals and Lazarus back home are likely facing. And I'm not going to read it, but in verse 17, John records that Jesus arrives there. And Lazarus has already been in the grave for four days. So we know that this is a few days later. Jesus took a while to respond longer than they had hoped. And you jump down to verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
Notice that Jesus doesn't fix what Martha believed to be her main problem. Martha has a, has a and how often we do this, right? We have a, an idea, we're, we're dead set, we, we know, we're fixated on this. This is our, our block, our roadblock, our problem. And if only God would fix this. And Jesus is insisting, he's helping her see, there's a deeper problem. He's addressing her need for him. Martha has just lost her brother, likely her provider in this day, as a female in the ancient Near East. He literally is her source of livelihood in that day. Martha thinks her biggest need was for her brother to be healed, but Jesus shows her that, her, that he is her life. And he's the one to bring ultimate provision. That's why in verse 27 she says to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. You jump down to 35 or 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid them? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to wept. Now this is a fascinating statement that Jesus, he's entirely God, right? He's, he knows what's about to come. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows Easter is coming. He knows resurrection is coming. Redemption. And yet, the shortest verse in the scripture, Jesus wept. Jesus began to weep, is what my translation says here. But some of yours just say, and Jesus wept. Even though he knows what's coming in just a few days, God inhabits the suffering of his people. He weeps. That's a comforting thought. It's a comforting reality. Knowing that man, God can look down on us now. He's here now and he sees and, and, and experiences and knows that humanity is suffering. The world is suffering. All of creation is enduring in light of sin. Much suffering and chaos. And even though Jesus knows that his time is right around the corner, he still acknowledges the hurt. He still feels it. He lets it break him. Now this foreshadows his eventual death on a cross. Now the prophet Isaiah, about 600 years before Jesus walked the earth, wrote, in chapter 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest of grief. And it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, just like we think often ours are, correct? A punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins, he was beaten so we could be whole, he was whipped so we could be healed. I don't know if you've ever experienced difficult situations with someone else, but there's something about going through a difficult situation, going through a dark season with other people that bonds you more than the best of days. Of getting out on the other end 
going through that battle together, going through the trenches and coming out, seeing new life, seeing hope, that just unites us. I'm guessing we all, and, and maybe even for some of us in this room, we, we have, if we're, if we're honest in surface level relationships. Man, I'll, I'll say that the ones I'm probably most close with are the ones that have seen me cry and that I've cried with them. And I can't control them. Those are the ones, and in those moments, that really bond us in bearing one another's burdens. Now, while atheism's approach says your suffering doesn't matter, and Buddhism's approach says detach yourself from that reality, Jesus' approach to suffering is to come into your world and experience your suffering and loss and even your abandonment from his father. One reason being to unite us with himself. So Jesus tells them to roll the stone away in verse 43b. They're covering their nose because Lazarus has just been in there for four days. It, it smells. And in 43, the second half of it, Jesus says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. See, the, the lack of hope we have in suffering in this life apart from Jesus is that we're doing it on our own. But suffering with Jesus depends on his deity, him being God. Jesus being the resurrection and life, Jesus having the power over death, this is our hope. This is humanity's only hope when we're faced with the reality of the inevitability of death. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Death does not have the final say, Jesus does. Death is not your end, Jesus is. But notice this, the story's main character here, it actually isn't even Lazarus, it's Martha. If you're unfamiliar with Martha and Mary, they, they've met Jesus before. In Luke's account of Jesus' life, Jesus visits their home. And Martha gets upset with her sister Mary because instead of helping prepare a meal for Jesus, she's sitting, she chooses to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear from his teaching. And Martha asks Jesus to tell her sister to go, get to work. But Jesus kindly tells her that Mary gets it. Mary gets it. Unfortunately, Martha, she's so caught up and she's so preoccupied by this that it deters her, that it distracts her from what? From Jesus being there. <coughs> Unfortunately, this gets in the way of her and Jesus. Her checklist, her schedule, she's unable to realize that Jesus, life itself, is in her living room. Her God's right there. Her rest is right there. Her fulfillment is right there, and she doesn't get it. 
So now when it comes to Jesus allowing her brother to pass, Rebecca McLaughlin writes this. The space between Lazarus' death and Jesus' calling of him out of the tomb is the space in which Martha sees Jesus for who he really is, her very life. We ask, why did God allow Lazarus to die? In this, in this particular occasion, we're able to see that it's the space where Martha is able to see her true source of life. That though her provider likely has just passed, know that Jesus is there. Jesus is her true source of life, her true source of meaning, her true source of hope. It's not until she suffers. It's not until she loses her income, until she loses her livelihood. But perhaps what may feel to her like her purpose for getting up in the morning is not being the sister of Lazarus, is not making a home for that family. Her purpose is much greater than that. Her purpose is to serve the Lord as her sister did earlier, to sit with him, to be with him. It's not until then that Martha sees Jesus for who he truly is. And so functionally, we, as we wrap up, we, we tend to think of God as a means to an end. That if we come to him or have faith or give money or do this, do blank, he'll answer our prayer, he'll give us stuff, he'll protect us, he'll heal us, he'll keep our families safe, and so on. But that, that, that's just not how it works. The church over and over again, has, and humanity as a whole, has faced much oppression, much hostility, much suffering. Notice that Martha came to God asking for him to give her what she wants. And when he doesn't answer the way she thinks he should, she's upset. Only later for Jesus to show her that he's not the means to her end, he is her end. That her suffering and her loss are means to drive her to him. Now, I don't, well, I have some theories, theological theories, but I'm not, you know, given much time here to get into whether God allows or God even condones or plans our suffering or not. These are theological debates that have been going on for a couple millennia. We can enjoy a cup of coffee if you want to talk over that some other time. But regardless of where you stand on that, whether God permits suffering, even plans it, or just allows it and works in, in response to it, the point of her suffering and the point of your suffering that you have, are, or even will endure is to drive us to him. See, there is purpose in suffering with the way of Jesus in light of him. It's not vanity. It's not a delusion. It's not something we have to detach ourselves from. No, it's real. and It's meant to drive us to our deity, to our God. And I think this story also addresses the common misconception that our suffering correlates with our sin, right? And how often do we drive by someone on the street or in a dire situation, and perhaps, if we're honest, our first question is, what did they do to get there? If you don't ask that question, the Spirit's worked more on you than me so far. 
but I know more often than not, if I'm, if I'm real, my default reaction is, man, what, what happened? What did they do? Rather than asking what happened to them, perhaps. Who wasn't there for them? What did I have in my life that maybe they didn't have available to them? It doesn't always line up like that in the world. We should be slow to make an assessment and make that correlation that our sin leads to suffering. And if we're suffering, we must have done something wrong. But I think time and time again, the scriptures are very clear that the amount of suffering we face does not correlate with our sin. Sometimes, but not always. Instead, the last story in John 9, Jesus meets a blind man. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, is this because of his sins or his parents' sins? Is he blind because of that? Something he did or that, it, that he's inheriting a debt from his parents? And Jesus asks, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answers. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. And then John writes that Jesus heals him. Now this is the opposite of Buddhism, the opposite of karma, that it all, what goes around comes around. That if you did something bad to someone, you know, somehow it's going to come back and get you. It doesn't always happen. But that's the opposite of that. The past actions directly affect current circumstances. With Jesus, that just isn't the case. The last thing I'll say is um, I want to encourage you as we approach Holy Week, as next Sunday being the last Sunday of Lent, next Sunday being Palm Sunday, I encourage you to set aside time to read the scriptures. Spend time in various narratives. Pick a gospel. Maybe even start reading towards the end as it's leading up to the cross and the resurrection. Maybe pick a couple songs in the Psalms or poems. See the centrality of suffering. That it's really in most, if not all, writings in the library of scripture. And while Easter is the central point of human history, one of the two main components of Easter is suffering. It's not only the central point of scripture, but, it, but it was, it's something that has shaped our world. And so, if God so prevalently, prevalently displayed his love and his sovereignty through suffering, have hope through him and the power of his resurrection that your suffering is not in vain. That there is meaning in it. That God can redeem it. And that even if it isn't um, remedied in this life, it is not in vain. It is meant to drive us to Jesus, to depend on him, no matter the cost. Trust that he has a purpose in allowing us to face whatever it is he, we are have or will face in our lives. I'll close with this quote from Corey Ten Boom. You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. 
You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. I'm going to invite the band up. <coughs> In this time, uh, I believe we have two songs. Yes? Uh, I invite you guys to prayerfully reflect on uh, the passage this morning, on the words of Jesus this morning, uh, to confess if you need to confess uh, in prayer to God. I invite you to uh, sacrificially give so the mission goes forward. There's opportunities, obviously, in the basket or our church center app, and we invite you to sing out for God is worthy of our prayers. And um, if you are in a place of suffering, if you are in a place of hurting, know and I understand singing is not always what you want to do. And that's okay. I encourage you to, to, to let the voices of your brothers and sisters around you, um, to sit in them, stew in those, steep in those, and hopefully asking the Spirit to encourage your heart, to encourage your soul, to give you hope in the resurrection to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Jesus, for embracing and enduring the ultimate of suffering on our behalf and on behalf of all of creation. God, that you don't let our suffering go unnoticed, but that you faced much of it, that you sat in it, God, that even though you know there is redemption coming, you still sit and you weep in that reality of what we are faced with. Whether it be out of our own volition, out of our own wrongdoings, the things that, man, we did nothing to endure this, to face this. God, you, you acknowledge that these are real pains, real hardships. And you love us. You lovingly endure, embrace the cross, embrace humanity, and experience our hardships. God, as we enter, uh, as we approach Holy Week and approach the resurrection, may uh, our lives not be overshadowed just by the death, by the suffering, by the cross, but may it be uh, lifted up in light of the resurrection as you have been, that there would be hope in our lives, that though we may be experiencing lows, experiencing deaths, experiencing suffering, resurrection is coming. New life is coming. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.